All right. Well, good morning. So you guys should have um, a handout. So the handout covers questions 81 through 84. And the, uh, the way that the timing worked with this, uh, my intent was to try to do uh, a, a little bit of a historical survey to help give some historical context to questions um, 82 and 84 in particular. Uh, you'll, you'll see that those in particular are addressing like the, uh, the, what they call the popish mass and, and other things. And so in order to, um, so as I was working through that, this will end up, will be divided up more where there will be, today will be a little bit more of kind of the history of some of the thought, how people have worked through some of these passages. And then next week, we'll really focus more on uh, the words of institution, what's intended, and you know, being able to contrast some of the things that we saw. Uh, for example, we'll see with, with development in the Lord's Supper, it became tradition and custom, but really kind of went against scripture. And we'll, we'll, we'll take that back biblically and theologically uh, to, to you know, the words of institution from the Lord Jesus uh, when, when he instituted the Lord's Supper. So just to give a little bit, a little bit of background, so this will be part one and uh, of, 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 of two parts. So uh, I think uh, Arnie did a really good job um, last week just helping us kind of biblically and theologically work through the Lord's Supper, some of the important facts, points, um, applications, like thinking through all those, I think those were super helpful. So wanting to build on that, I think just reiterating from, from what, what Arnie had said, uh, the, the Lord's Supper is an important part of the church, right? Jesus gave two ordinances or sacraments, right, uh, those terms can be used, where it is an outward sign or symbol of God's grace intended for the church when the church gathers, like, uh, like um, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, until he comes, right? It's to be passed down for every generation, something to be perpetuated, right? So there's, there's an importance to this in these, in these two. Um, so... What we'll do, and again, on your handout, what you'll see is, is the four questions. What, I, what I'll do is I'll just do an overview. We won't read each of them as, uh, as we'll spend more time next week getting into really questions, uh, each of those questions, but more so questions 81 and 83. So question 81 is asking the, the question, where is Christ promised that he will as certainly give his body and blood to be eaten and drank as they eat this bread broken and drink this cup? And really what it's asking is, what are the grounds by which we address and understand the Lord's Supper as such, right? Going back to what Arnie brought up in questions 79 and 80, right? So it's really asking, what are the grounds, right? Where, where do we base the Lord's Supper? What is it based on? Then in question 82, it then says, are then the bread and wine made the very body and blood of Christ? Now, this point in particular has been a point of controversy throughout church history. In what sense does the body of Christ represent and is present with the bread after the words of institution are spoken? And in what sense is the cup representative of the presence of Christ, right, and the blood of Christ, right? And so we'll, we'll get into that as we see as the church has worked through some of these words, like when Jesus said, this is my body, right? How was it understood? So then if you go with me to question 83, he then says, uh, why then does Christ call his body and the cup his blood, or the New Testament his blood? And St. Paul calls bread and wine the communion of the body and blood of Christ. So they're, they're, 
it's then asking the question, well, then why? Why is this kind of language used, right? What, what are we to learn from this kind of language? And again, we'll, we'll spend more time addressing some of these things next week in regard, especially in questions 81 and 83. And then 84, and this is really, I think, where the historical context is helpful. Um, so as you see on your notes where it says, what difference is there between the supper of the Lord and the popish mass? Right now, popish is referring to the Roman Catholic Church. The Pope is um, over the Roman Catholic Church. And mass, uh, so uh, uh, we refer to our corporate gathering as our worship service. In the Roman Catholic Church, they refer to it as the mass. Uh, so that's why, so it's asking that question. So what difference is there between the Supper of the Lord and the Popish Mass? Now this one I do want to read because as we read through church history, I think you'll see some of these correlations, especially as we go through uh, uh, what, what are called the Middle Ages, right? Roughly 500 AD to 1500-ish AD, right? Kind of in, in that time period. So um, can I have someone read the answer to question 84? Yeah, Crystal. Answer. The Supper of the Lord testifies to us that we have perfect forgiveness of all of our sins on account of the only sacrifice of Christ, which he once fully brought on the cross. It also testifies that we, by faith, are grafted into Christ, who now, according to his human nature, is only in heaven at the right hand of his Father, and there will be worshipped by us. But in the Mass, it is denied that the living and the dead have remission of sins by the only by the only passion of Christ, except that he also be daily offered for them by their sacrifices. Further, it is taught that Christ is bodily under the forms of bread and wine, and therefore is to be worshipped in them. And so the very foundation of the Mass is nothing else but an utter denial of that only sacrifice and passion of Christ Jesus and an accursed idolatry. Okay. So I think that's really helpful. So I just, what I'll do is I'll, I'll make a couple quick points and then we'll go into really some of the history in regards to how, how has the church understand this? How has it developed up through early church, medieval age, and then up through the Reformation and post-Reformation when we look at even a document like the Westminster Confession or own Second Line of Baptist Confession. So just by way of a, a couple of points, right? So uh, the Supper of the Lord, right? So it's a, it, it testifies, right? It proclaims, right? Uh, like, like what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, right? Um, uh, we proclaim the Lord's death till he comes, right? The Lord's Supper is a proclamation. Um, then what you'll also see, right? Uh, it also testifies, right? Our being grafted, our union with Christ by faith. But then, and this is important because this will become this distinction when we talk about when the Lord Jesus said, this is my body. There, there's theology that's happening, right? That we need to understand so, and, and, and I think what, what this says here is helpful, where it says, who now according to his human nature is only in heaven at the right hand of his father, right? So um, Jesus, right, God the Son took on human flesh and then died, lived a perfect life, died, buried, raised, and then ascended and is seated at the father's right hand. Right? He has a glorified human nature, the, what we call the hypostatic union, where his human nature right, and his divine nature right, are together in one, distinct but in one person. Right? But he operates in accordance with both. 
It's two 100%. 100% fully man, 100% fully God. And what this is addressing is that his human nature in heaven has not changed. His human nature cannot do things that are not humanly, right? His human nature cannot be everywhere at once, but his divinity can be everywhere at once. So this will be a point as we bring up in, through the history of the church, how we think about Christ, right, um, in regards to his human body and how he cannot be, um, uh, in particular, his human nature cannot be everywhere at once. Now, how is he everywhere at once? Like when Jesus said in Matthew 28, right, 20, right, I will be with you always to the end of the age, right? That promise, Jesus truly is with us, but how is he with us? He's with us through the Holy Spirit, right? The helper, the one who is sent in place of Christ, right? Like in John 14, right? Uh, the helper will come. He will dwell in you, right? Just as, he, just as Jesus is in the Father, so, um, so I will be in you and you will be in me, right? The Father and I will come to us, or, you know, it says, says them, they. Uh, it will, the, the Father and the Son will come to us and they will make their home with us, right? So how, how does this happen? It's not with his human nature, but it's through the Holy Spirit, right? Or as Paul says in Romans 8, the Spirit of Christ. So now again, uh, and, uh, and then that's going to be contrasted with the things that happen in the Roman Catholic Mass. Now, if, uh, if, if you have your confession and you look at chapter 30, I, I, think, I think there's a total of seven paragraphs, if I remember, and I think five of them all have a contrast with the Roman Catholic Church. And there's a significant reason for that, and we'll see that from, from, from church history. So, any, any questions before we kind of hop in? Just overall context, I think just kind of getting our bearings. Yeah, George. I have one question. Um, yeah. With what you were saying about the hypostatic union. Yes. Um, do you think that we can utilize that alone as an argument against the fact that the body and blood is literally the flesh and blood? Of Christ, uh, the bread and wine. Like that. Yes. You can only be human in one place. Yes. So, right now, Christ's human body is glorified in heaven. Yes. Father, Correct. And human beings can't be in two places at one time. So could, could that be an argument against the doctrine of transubstantiation? Yes. Yep. And even the Lutheran view. The Lutheran view. Yes. I, I, I would say uh, I, I believe that to be the case. And uh, you see uh, several of the reformers and those after them that would use that argument. And, and, that, and that's why it's included in the catechism like this. Because I, I do think that is significant. Yeah. All right. So. So again, th this will be, again, trying to help understand. So what we're doing is we're looking, how has the church tried to think through these passages, right, about the Lord's Supper, its institution, what does it mean? So look with me. So, and really, we're going to follow uh, um, Greg Allison. So he's a professor at Southern Seminary. He's got a book, uh, Historical Theology. And it's helpful because he takes not, not so much people, right, like what do I know about this person, but he takes doctrines. How did what people thought and believed and interpret with Scripture put it together? How did they develop and then think that through from the previous generations, right? And so he does a helpful job kind of laying that out. So we're going to really kind of follow along uh, th those lines this morning. So, um, and then I'll just by way of recommendation, Louis Burkhoff, he has one that's free online. Uh, that's also really helpful called History of Christian Doctrines, where he does the same thing. So if you want a free option, um, there you go, by, by way of reference. So... All right. 
So look with me on your, on your notes under historical context, right? So uh, here, the, the words of institution of the Lord's Supper, right? They're spoken Matthew 26, Mark 14, and in the Gospel of Luke, and then repeated in 1 Corinthians 10 or 1 Corinthians 11. Like it says here, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, I'll read this quote here from uh, Greg Allison. And I think like if, if you just want like the high summary view of like where we're going, just, just keep this quote, because this is going to give you the helpful like you know, 50,000 foot view. The church has historically been faithful to obey the Lord's command to observe this right, but has done so with various understandings of the meaning purpose and results of its observation. The Catholic Church celebrates the Eucharist, which I'll comment about uh, terms in, in a minute, the, uh, celebrates the Eucharist according to a view called transubstantiation. Uh, so and we, we'll, we will define these, like it says here, called transubstantiation, which contends that the elements of bread and wine are changed in substance into Christ's body and blood. And one of the things that we'll, we'll talk about is how the, uh, when the Catholic Church developed this, um, well, well, we'll get into that. So basically transubstantiation, that the substance changes from being bread and wine to the body and blood of Christ. So the Lutherans, right? So this is Martin Luther and those who followed after him in his footsteps. They celebrate the Lord's Supper according to a view called consubstantiation. So they rejected transubstantiation where it actually became the body and blood of Christ in substance. But Luther was a stickler uh, when he fought Zwingli on this. And again, we'll, we'll get into this in regards to uh, what, what does it mean when it says this is my body, right? So and Luther emphasizing the, the, the literal grammatical was this is my body. It really means it, but it's not transubstantiation. And so the Lutherans, which hold that the bread and wine do not actually become the body and blood of Jesus Christ, but that the true body and blood of Christ are present in, with, or con, that's where the con comes with, uh, and under the elements. Now he gets two more. Other churches celebrate a communion as a memorial of the death of Jesus Christ. Uh, the bread and wine are symbols that help believers remember the body that was broken and the blood that was shed by Christ for their sins. Still other churches administer the Lord's Supper with a belief in the spiritual presence of Jesus Christ. The bread and wine are still symbols, but not empty symbols. Although, element, although the elements do not become the body and blood of Christ, they are a sign that Christ himself is really present. Now again, so that's kind of like 50,000 foot view, kind of gives you the four major views, if you will, right? And then how they developed in, in the church. So look with me on your notes. Uh, in regards to the early church. Now, again, what we, what we said for timing with the early church, so the early church, again, uh, some people will define it a little bit differently, but 100 to 500 AD, somewhere in, in that time period, sometimes it's defined by councils or, or individuals, but that, that kind of gives you a rough, rough time period. So, um, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. By way of comment in regards to um, terms, so you'll hear terms like, so we'll, we'll say like the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table, that's it's pretty common, right? Or, you know, the, the bread and the cup or the bread and the wine. 
Uh, you also hear terms, and this is emphasized maybe a little bit more in like um, uh, other, other denominations, but you'll hear Eucharist or, uh, or even communion. So all of those are biblical words, but uh, they become maybe more emphasized in certain contexts. So maybe like I, I grew up in a Roman Catholic church, and so the only term that was really used growing up was Eucharist, right? Now, what, now Eucharist is really just from the Greek word to give thanks. So like we had read in Matthew 26, uh, and, and what Paul had said in 1 Corinthians 11, that when Jesus took bread, right, he broke it and gave thanks, right? And literally the Greek word for give thanks is eucharisteo, right? So Eucharist comes from that word. And then another word that you'll hear is communion, right? Now communion is just another, it's a transliteration, or not transliteration, it's a translation for the Greek word koinonia, which means to, fel uh, to fellowship, to share, to partake in, right? So really what, what that word is signifying is that we fellowship and we partake and share in with Christ and then also with one another, right? And we, and we see this vertical and horizontal element. So you'll hear some of those terms used almost interchangeably. Some may bring baggage, right, from some of those different contexts like you know, Anglican, Lutheran, Roman Catholic, et cetera. But again, just to give a basic feel with where some of those terms come from. So in the, in the early church, um, uh, so Allison does like a helpful survey, right? He's looking at diff different materials. So how many of you have heard of this old like church manual, church doctrine document called the Didache? Yep, so maybe, maybe a couple. All right, so the Didache literally means, in, in Greek it just means the teaching, right? And it was early second century, so within the early like 100s AD, right, so that the apostles all die, you know, if John was, you know, on Patmos in the early 90s, right, and some of the others died in the 60s and 70s AD, some of that, some of that time period, right, so this is, you know, what, one, one or two generations maybe after the time of Christ and, and the apostles. So that kind of gives you a feel, so he, he surveys some of the material there, Justin Martyr, and some other early church fathers, right, with prominent writings that we still have today. And this is, this is his summary. Can't remember if I put it on here. I did, okay. So as you see with your summary on the early church, he makes some, some, several points. So he said, um, several points should be underscored. First, only baptized believers could participate in the Lord's Supper. Second, only baptized believers who were in proper relationship to Jesus and his church were allowed to participate. Third, uh, celebration of the Lord's Supper was part and parcel of every weekly church gathering. Fourth, the elements of this rite were bread and a cup containing a mixture of wine and water. Now he also remarks and says, uh, the early church understood the Lord's Supper in a variety of ways. And I, and I think this is helpful. And again, I would just make the comment, the early church does not have the same weight as scripture, right? And we, we, we all know that and understand that. But it can also be helpful to see what they thought, especially so, t so close to the time of Christ, right? To, to understand one of the things that we'll hit on when we hit on the Reformation was um, one of the things that they would appeal to was not only scripture, but there was also this sense of the early church, right? Get, getting back to some of the things said by the early church. Now, when you read the early church, the early church can be really confusing because they can say things that really feel like they're talking almost out of like two sides of, of their mouth, right? Where was it this like cohesive picture? And so sometimes you're like, well, hey, this, he said this and then he said this. And we're going to see that, uh, for example, with Augustine here in, in just a minute. So again, the early church is helpful, right? And, and, and we'll see that like during the Reformation time period, there's an appeal to go back to the scripture. What does the scripture say? But then there's also the sense in which 
but it also aligned with early church practice, right? We, we, we'll, we'll see that. So, um, so okay, yeah, so, the, so saying, so we think about the early church. The early church understood the Lord's Supper in a variety of ways. First, the concept of the Lord's Supper as a sacrifice is found early on. And again, when you hear that language, to me, that's like really concerning, right? Because uh, like you, you start to think of like the Roman Catholic Church. Now, what, 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 what Allison shows is it's, it's this appeal to like Old Testament, almost like memorial type sacrifices, uh, you know, um, and again, I... I don't necessarily uh, agree, but you see this, you see this um, reference back. And, that, and then he makes the second point. Second, while it is clear that sacrificial language was associated with the Lord's Supper, it is not as clear what the early church believed about the nature of the sacrifice. And one of the things that, they, that he pointed out or that he noticed was when you read the early church, they go from this simple system of pastors and elders and deacons, right? In the, in the first century, like the Didache, uh, Clement of Rome and others will use that language, right? Similar to, to a church structure that, that we see today. And then it starts to get changed out for bishops in this hierarchy. And then over time, those bishops and pastors gets changed out with terms like priest, right? So over time, there's this development where the Lord's Supper is kind of over here and they start to use some of the sacrificial language. And then you start to see language about a pastor who's now kind of like a priest. So you can see over time what, you know, what, what's going to happen, right, as, as those ideas start to, start to come together. So third, this idea rested on a belief in the reality of the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Um, so again, so that element of what does it mean when Jesus says, this is my body, right? So they were emphasizing that Christ is present. Now, um, and then he... Uh, but then the, one of the questions that's open, right, or, or maybe left um, unanswered is, in what way is Christ present, right? So there, there's an emphasis that he is there, but in what way, right? And that's what the church will spend time developing and thinking through. And then lastly, or fourthly, this belief uh, in the reality of Christ's presence was tied uh, to the act of commemoration, right? Where, where Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, right? Um, and then, uh, and then lastly, the Lord's Supper was viewed by some in symbolic terms. Now, it, an important individual, when we think about the history, right, of, of theology and the church, especially even for us Reformed folks, is Augustine. Now, I've heard it helpfully said that in Augustine, uh, two seeds, it, it's kind of like, um, oh, uh, uh, Isaac, and, uh, Isaac and Rebecca, right, with Jacob and Esau, right, like, from Rebecca came two seeds, right? And you had Jacob and you had Esau, right? With Augustine, it's like, it's similar, right? You get the Roman Catholic Church in many ways and you get the Reformed Church. And again, remember how I said like there's things where people seem like, they're, uh, speaking out of both sides of their mouth can seem um, like, like malintent, but, but saying things that aren't as completely thought through or maybe disconnected or there's this overlap that's not really clarified, right? And so we see that with Augustine. So let me, um, and, uh, and Allison here I think is really helpful. So he does this in two, um, uh, he provides two perspectives on, um, on the Lord's Supper. So, um, so he, he said this, that, and this was generally how they defined the term sacrament, really came from Augustine, where it was, generally it was seen as an outward and visible sign. So the symbol of an invisible yet genuine grace, Right? Uh, so this idea, visible, outward symbol of grace. But then he also introduced this other term. 
and it's this Latin phrase, ex opera operato, right? Um, now, what does that mean? And I, I don't know Latin, so I'm just reading from here. What, what, what does that mean? It's, it's like with the doing, doing, um, uh, or, or literally uh, um, uh, by the work performed. And this is going to give way to the Roman Catholic uh, um, sacramental system, if you will. Uh, the technical term is sacerdotalism, which just means sac the, the sacramental system. And what that means is basically independent of the priest, whether he's godly or ungodly, what, and, and, and what he believes, uh, that grace is given in the Lord's Supper and independent of the person and what's going on in their heart. So it almost, again, this is over time, it almost turned into like this like magical grant, right? Or like if you play video games, right? And you know how like you get like the, the medical thing and you just add them and you start like increasing health. It was seen like that way, like you took the Lord's Supper and somehow you got grace, right? Even though it's apart from understanding and apart from faith, like there, there's this added, right? Now, did Augustine, uh, like, did he intend all of that when he came up with this? No, he was fighting against uh, some early church error related to the Donatists who, uh, who basically said, uh, your baptism and the Lord's Supper are invalid, uh, and then they made the, the, these different qualifications. So, but again, it's helpful to understand what Augustine said, right, in the, you know, was Augustine 300s, 400s, in, in roughly in that time period, right, to where we end up with a sacramental system in 800, 900, 1000 AD that we'll see that gets basically canonized with the Council of Trent in the 1500s. So, again, hundreds of years make a difference, but it's, it's helpful to see wh where they start from. So, um, uh, Okay, so Augustine, his two perspectives. So one is that Christ is truly present in the elements, right? So that's on one side. And then the other side, that he held a symbolic position uh, in accordance with what a sacrament is. That is a sinus or a symbol of inward grace, right? So it's this outward visible sign for inward grace, right? That, that, um, that, 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 is, that is taking place. So... Um, so let's head down to the, the, the Middle Ages or the medieval time period, right? So 500 to 1500. So what happens, right? So we see these true, two trajectories with Augustine. So there's, there's a couple major figures, right? Um, some of these guys' names I'm going to butcher, but just, just bear with me. So really, Augustine's view, right, in both kind of holds, holds, the, holds sway for several centuries. But then... Uh, in, in roughly the ninth century, so in the 800s, there's uh, this monk, uh, Radbertus, and, and he starts to really get into what does it mean that Christ is really present in the Lord's Supper? And so, um, uh, when, when he, and, and again, it's this appeal to this is my body, and here, here's, here's, here's what he had said. When he took the bread, Christ did not say this is the figure of my body, so Radbertus questioned how anyone could believe that it is not, in fact, the reality of the flesh and blood of Christ that exists in the Eucharist. Now, he was then challenged by this guy, Rat-Ramnus, okay? Um, and he took a different view and said, no, look, you, you have to understand the distinction between sign and reality. What, what is it pointing to, right? Um, and so he's going to use these terms, you know, between reality, so empirically what hits our senses, 
right? And again, this is like, in one sense, it's like common sense type stuff, right? Um, it's, it's bread and wine that hits the li lips and tongue and all those kind of things. And then there's the, uh, what, what he'll refer to as the figure. It's really the, the, uh, the thing that's behind the veil, what's intended, right? What, what's going on? So, um, uh, so again, and, and I think he captures this mystery well. He says, uh, what we find in this mystery, both the, both the physical, right, and the spiritual, exhibits one thing outwardly to the human senses, and proclaims another thing inwardly or spiritually to the minds of the faithful, right? So we see this idea where, where, where it's this both. Well, uh, unfortunately, um, uh, and, and so one of the things, so George, going back to your question, one of the things that he appeals to is he goes back to doing theology right, that the human nature of Christ can't, it, it's, it is at the Father's right hand, right? We cannot change the glorified, ascended, human nature of Christ, right? And that, that becomes one of his appeals. Now, unfortunately, uh, his view was rejected. Radbertus's view was adopted, and that really solidified the church in that time. So again, that's 800s. So you go fast forward a couple hundred years. In the 11th century, similar thing happens with this guy, Beren, Berengar of Tours. Um, and again, what, what he, he said something similar uh, as Rach Ramnus, uh, that what we eat in the Lord's Supper is not the actual historical body and blood of Christ, but only a sacrament, a visible sign. And one of the things that he does is he goes back to the early, so not only does he go back to scripture, but he goes back to the early church. And he says, look, this, these are the things that were said by those in the early church, right? So you see this appeal. Well, he ends up uh, getting pressure um, from the, uh, the Roman Catholic Church to recant. He ends up recanting, and then the church really becomes even more solidified, right? It's kind of like stacking and like really gaining, um, like, like more concrete, right? Well, if, if that's the case, then there's more concrete added with the, um, with the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215. And that's where they officially, the Roman Catholic Church officially adopts this view called transubstantiation. So if you remember on your, on the other side of your notes are, I think it's at the bottom of the first page, right? Where, what is transubstantiation? Where the body and blood of Christ are changing substance, but they do not change, and uh, they'll use this term, accident or form. So even though it really looks like bread and it really tastes like wine, it is in substance, the body and blood of Christ, but its accident or form didn't change. Now, wh where does that come from? Well. It is Aristotelian philosophy um, uh, that, that, that was picked up on, where you have, you have the substance, but then you also have the accident or form that it takes. Now, it'll be interesting, because Luther will, 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 will hit on this, right? Like, what, what, what's really going on here? So this then, like, um, uh, so then after that, you have Thomas Aquinas, who really puts the formula pen to paper of like, how this works theologically, philosophically, and basically builds this whole system, right, that we really see in the Roman Catholic Church today related to the Lord's Supper and transubstantiation. He becomes the one who really kind of, if you will, canonizes it from, uh, you know, in defend it, in, to be able to defend it. Um, all right. So how many of you are familiar with um, uh, John Huss or, or John Wycliffe? So what, 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 is, what, what, are, what are John Wycliffe and John Huss normally associated with? 
Translation? I said the Lollards. The Lollards. Yep, okay, the Lollards. Yeah, forerunners. Yep, where, where we see in them, right, this kind of this, this pushback and fight against some of these gross overtures and departures that we find during the medieval period, right? And so, so one of the things that John Wycliffe was associated with was this strong stance against transubstantiation. And um, what I want you to notice is the language that he uses here is language that will be used not only in the catechism, like we read in question 84, but even in our confession, right? It's the same concerns that he had in the 1300s, right? Still existed in the 15 and 1600s, right? And unfortunately, the Roman Catholic Church has not recanted on any of these things that they have canonized, right? About, about what they believe. So it's still things that are even believed and held to today. So um, uh, can I get someone to read the John Wycliffe quote, quote on your notes, where it says first and foremost, Des? First and foremost, he derided the lack of a biblical and rational foundation for the idea. A second reason was that transubstantiation did not enjoy the support of church history. Third, transubstantiation was defeated by the recognition of the senses and human judgment that the bread is bread before becoming consecrated and remains bread after it is consecrated. Finally, Wycliffe drew attention to the disastrous consequences of belief in transubstantiation. He was particularly critical of the idolatry that resulted from the idea, which he saw in two areas, people's worship of the consecrated bread and the absolute power claimed by the priests to transform the bread into the body of Christ. All right. So there's several things here, right? So no notice a couple things. What does he do? He appeals, one, to Scripture. What, what, what does Scripture say, right? Secondly... He appeals to church history. How has the church understood this? But then also notice, notice this. It's like uh, common sense, right? Like, you, I'm, like I'm, I'm eating bread and I'm drinking wine and I can taste those things. That's what they are, right? So there, there's this common sense that's associated with them. And, our, and again, if you look in our confession in chapter 30, it does the same kind of thing where there's this common sense. But then he also noted in particular, the idolatry. So um, how, how many of you have ever been in a Roman Catholic mass or even a funeral? Because they normally do. Uh, yep. Okay. So yeah, yeah. A, a couple. Yep. So you, you, one of the things you remember is what they do is they will. So, you know, the, the priest will basically wash his hands, prepare, and they view this as a sacrifice. They'll then take, right, this, this wafer that's in a circle, right? He lifts it up, right? And what's supposed to be happening is worship worshiping the elements because Christ is present. And then what happens? The sacrifice, it's a bloodless sacrifice. It's broken, right? Uh, that he as a priest is enacting, right? So, these, so what happens is the people end up worshiping these elements because they're told Christ is there, right? That he's really present there. And that's what he, one of the things that he's noticing on is this gross idolatry, right? And then he talks about the absolute power of, of the priest, right? Doing this sacrifice, bringing Christ down from heaven, right? And, 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 and being uh, re-sacrificed re in a bloodless sacrifice. So, all right. Um, well, let's, so what we're going to do is um, hit on uh, the, the Reformation and post-Reformation period, right? So, again, I think you're starting to see like so, some of these developments, right? So one of the things 
that is really important with the Reformation, and I put this on, I think, yeah, I put it on your notes. Yeah, the Reformation is that it's both connected and corrective. So the Reformation church is coming out of the early church and the, the medieval church, if you will, right? So there is thought and doctrine and patterns that are basically being passed through and that are being inherited by the Reformation church, but not all of those are just received without filter, if you will, right? The reality is there was a critical, if you will, I don't know, appraisal or the way in which we are to figure out these gross departures, right? Like the, to use the words of um, Wycliffe, right? Like th these gross idolatries and, and other things that need to be corrected or to use the term of the Reformation, be reformed, right? And one of the important pieces, you'll see this with Calvin in, his, uh, in, in, the, in the beginning of his institutes, when he writes to the king of France, one of the things that he knows is that um, the Roman Catholic Church is the one coming up with these new innovations, right? These, these new doctrines. And they're the ones that have departed from Scripture in the early church. And the Reformation is really tying back in not only to Scripture, but then the same things that the early church taught, but that were departed from during, during the medieval ages, right? So you see this connection that like sometimes it'll view like, you know, when, when did the reformed or the, the, the churches of the Reformation start? It's like Jesus, early church, medieval church, Roman Catholic church. And then the Reformation church is kind of out here with this like no start zone, like start, you know, 1500. And the reality is it's early church, medieval church. And then if you will, you have medieval church with, you know, these branches, right? And the departure is going out into the Roman Catholicism. And the Reformed Church, or the, you know, the Churches of the Reformation, are connected through the medieval and through the, um, through, 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 through the earlier ages. All right. So three major views. So one of the things, um, uh, so one of the things that um, uh, happened, so you think of some major figures in the Reformation. And again, we're, we're just hitting on three. You have Martin Luther, right, German monk. You have uh, Huldrych Zwingli, which I think he was Swiss. Is that right? Does anyone remember? Swiss, right? Yep. And then you have John Calvin, who's French, right? A French reformer, right? So, uh, and then with each of them, they each bring, uh, if you will, a contribution to them thinking through when Jesus, not only with the Lord's Supper in general, but what is meant by this is my body. And, 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 and this was important. Uh, um, uh, Luther and Zwingli, when they were reforming the church and interacting, they actually had a gathering in 1523 or 15, no, 1512. They had 15 points of disagreement. And they resolved 14 of them. And you know what the one was that they couldn't resolve? The Lord's Supper, right? Yeah, because Luther, and, and Luther has a way of saying things that are hurtful uh, or, or, or um, uh, you know, or just, you know, I don't know, just sharp. sharp. Yes, yeah, exactly. They, they can have a barb to them, right? Yeah, or, or pictures, right? So anyways, the, the way in which, um, so, yeah, so, so again, you, you see that there was, there was some disagreement. So the three, if you will, if you go back on your, on your notes, right? So those three of consubstantiation, right? The idea that he is not uh, really present where the substance has somehow changed. But then Luther, again, was saying, but it's not figurative, right? It, it's, it, we have to take it literally. And, and again, part of what Luther was doing during the time of Reformation is he's going back and he's looking at these gross changes in the Roman Catholic Church and saying, this is not what Scripture teaches, right? He's going back to this literal sense, right? But then you see him pressing it here, 
where it's, this is my body. And so then he uses these phrases that it is in, with, or under the elements, right? Which again, like if, I, I tried to do some reading on it, and to be honest with you, it was, it, it was confusing, right? Like, in, in what sense is he in, with, or under, but, but, but it's not the substance, right? So you're, you're, you're kind of struggling with that. And, and really, um, Luther, sim- similar to the Roman Catholics, with the human nature of Christ, he's so associated with it, with the one person, where Christ is present, right, in, 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 in each of these things, but he emphasized the human nature, which again, just seems like a Christology error. When we think about who Jesus is and his glorified human nature, right, what, what, what's going on there? So, so that's, the, that's, that's really kind of the Lutheran view, how, how they developed and came to that. But then next, right, you have uh, Zwingli and the Lord's Supper as a memorial, right? So when you think of a memorial, think of like a memorial service, right? You're, you're, you're remembering someone, right? So it has that idea when Jesus said, you know, um, or sorry, let me get ahead of myself. So, for example, like Zwingli, um, uh, he maintained that the sacrament as a sign and noted how the sign and the thing signified cannot be one and the same. And one of his key points was his understanding of Jesus' phrase, again, this is my body. He understood it as this signifies my body. But then he also noted this. Immediately afterward, right, when Jesus says this is my body in Luke twenty-two nineteen, Christ adds this do in remembrance of me from which it follows that the bread is only a figure of his body to remind us in the supper that his body was crucified for us, right? And so now Allison says here that Zwingli was just a, a, what will be called like a memorialist. Like you do the Lord's Supper and you remember the Lord Jesus as you, as you take it. But, but I don't think that's the case. I think he also had this idea that Christ is also spiritually present. And that really gets us into, the, into you know, I don't know if you want it like third option, but, but really the... The idea developed from the French reformer, John Calvin, right? Um, so he, he, again, everyone is agreeing there's this outward sign. Um, and, and so Calvin, uh, he, he had said this. Um, it's an outward sign by which the Lord seals on our consciences the promises of his goodwill toward us in order to sustain the weakness of our faith. So that's one of the things that you'll see is there's this element which the Lord's Supper, right? You, you see this um, in several, but you'll see this here with Calvin, that it has this element to strengthen and to nourish. So it's not, it's not like the sacramental system of the Roman Catholic Church, ex opera operato, where the priest puts it on your tongue and it's kind of like this magical spiritual plus up, if you will, right? Independent of faith and independent of your thinking, engaging of the heart, right? But instead, by faith, this is a nourishment and a strengthening of faith. Um, so, so, but one of the things that he emphasized was the, was the role of the Holy Spirit related to the, to the Lord's Supper and related to the presence of Christ. So how are you strengthened in the Lord's Supper? It's by the Spirit strengthening you through faith in Christ, right? And you'll see, so Calvin, like uh, Arnie, uh, last week you, uh, we all read uh, John 6, right? And that idea where Jesus, where he's talking about feeding and drinking, right? It's this idea of believing and communing with Christ, right? And that's, that's this picture that's being emphasized even in the Lord's Supper. Now, 
Um, so then to answer the question, uh, actually, let me, let me read this. So he says, uh, the Holy Spirit works through the sacrament. Er, okay, yeah, let me read. Uh, the Holy Spirit works through the sacrament to increase and confirm our faith. And this is what he says. What increases and confirms faith is precisely the preparation of our minds by the Spirit's inward illumination to receive the confirmation, the confirmation specifically of the promises extended by the sacraments, or in particular the Lord's Supper here, right? So it's this nourishing and confirming element that, that it has for us. Now, um, so then how is Christ present if the substance doesn't change, right, transubstantiation, and if Christ's human nature does not leave heaven, right, uh, or, or so associated with the single person like the Lutherans, well, then in what way is Christ present? And, and um, what, what Calvin went on to argue and what you'll see in the, the, the catechisms and confessions that kind of follow is he is present spiritually or by the Spirit. So one of the things that happens is that it's not only a sign that engages our mind to remember Christ, but that the Spirit is bringing us into fellowship through the sign to commune with Christ and Him crucified, right? So Calvin will use terms like, He will bring us spiritually up to where Christ is in heaven, or the Spirit will bring Christ personally to us through the Spirit. So remember how we were going over John 14? There's that sense, how does Christ dwell with us or among us? It's through the Holy Spirit, right? But then in this particular way, with the Lord's Supper, it is then to emphasize and bring out uh, the reality of Christ crucified and bloodshed for the forgiveness of sins, right? So, so you see this element then of um, not only the Holy Spirit, but also how Christ is present with us spiritually, right? You see, you'll, you'll, you'll hear this term, the spiritual presence of, uh, of Christ. So all in all, um, okay. Um, so again, that hopefully lays just like a helpful background and in regards to some of the views. And again, like we read in question 84, because that's going to be helpful, helpful historical context so that when we go through really more of some of the biblical theological things related to institution, how Christ is present, um, it helps us to kind of understand how it developed, was corrected, and, and, and some of those things. So any, any, any quick questions or, yeah, George? Right. Do we, would we consider that to be heretical in any way? Like, how, I mean, in my opinion, what the Roman Catholic Church does is heretical in their yes. view. Right. How would we see Lutherans as borderline heretical in that view? Yeah, so... That, like, that, that, for example, with Luther, he yeah. said that he would rather drink blood with the Pope than to drink mere wine with Linda. Yeah. So he was very passionate about it. Oh, totally, yes, yeah. So I'm saying, should we always associate Luther a lot closer to Rome? Yeah, it, it becomes hard because it, it, it's not tied in the same way. Because uh, there's other things that Luther said about the Lord's Supper that were super helpful related to faith, faith alone, and uh, the, the sacrifice. So it, it doesn't have the same context of the Roman Catholic Church in, in some of those other elements. But yeah, I think, like, for example, what he does with Christology, right, is, is really wrong, right? Um, uh, but 
I generally think of the term heresy as like first order um, damn type thing, but I would definitely say it was, it was wrong teaching or even false teaching, but I don't think it made him like a, a heretic who's in hell, if that makes sense, right? Like, like in, in that type of, type of category. But, but, but I think we can still say that, that he was wrong and that it was significant error. Yeah. Do you know if the Lutherans um, worship the host in the same way that the Roman Catholic I, 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 I could suppose, but I, I don't know for sure. I, I don't think so. Um, but um, but I, I, I don't know for sure because I didn't do that much reading. Yeah, and then Roger? In, modern, in the modern evangelical world, are we seeing the absolute opposite of the Roman heresy with the supper and that the broader evangelical church is discounting and diminishing? I'm thinking there's, there's even since COVID, Oh, just have some Ritz crackers and orange juice in front of the TV in your pajamas. Yes. Uh, and they're still promoting that. And, and is that is the evangelical church, the broader evangelical church, missing the boat as well on the other side of that that truth? Yeah, I think that's a, a, a fair analysis, and we'll kind of see that with the words of institution, um, or not. Uh, um, or not, not with words of institution, but, but in, in 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul's talking about it, when, when he says, uh, when you come together, right? It means when you come together as a church, right? And so I think we've lost some of that, or um, yes, I, I, I would agree, where, where it's swung, and maybe some of the importance, right, that's associated with it has been marginalized or diminished, and, and unfortunately, that, that, that can play a role in someone's assurance, right? Because it, it is intended to have this assuring effect, right, as you take the Lord's Supper, right, in faith, and what it does there. All right, well, let's go ahead and pray. Uh, Father God, we thank you so much. We pray that you would um, even help us, Lord, as we come to take the Lord's Supper and to be together, to hear the preached word, to sing, and to fellowship with the saints. Father, we pray that you would uh, encourage our hearts and strengthen our minds as we commune with you through the Lord Jesus in the Spirit. So, Father, bless even this time now. In Jesus' name, amen.